Hello. All right. Um, This morning's reading is uh, from Esther, Esther 4. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, um, our ushers are handing some out. Put your hand up and you can grab one. If you don't actually own a Bible, you can take one home with you. So Esther 4, and that's page 412 in that Bible that's being handed out, if you want to look there. All right. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, for, the, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one who the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I I and my women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. How's everyone? Are we good? Yes, we're good? Awesome. Well, it's good to be with you today. Uh, If you're new here, maybe you're even like new to the whole Christian scene, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a perspective. Like when people are raising their hands, I mean, that's maybe a little bit of an odd thing. As Christians, I imagine we can think that that would be an odd thing to somebody that's never been part of a church before, a gathering of Christians before. And what that is, you know, in some ways, uh, when someone surrenders, they, they put their hands up. 
right? Other ways, when uh, Nixon uh, wants to be picked up by me, his father, he puts up his hands like this. And so in many ways, when Christians raise their hands when they're singing in worship to God, is what they're saying is, God, I'm I'm raising my hands up to you. Uh, Pick me up. uh, Carry me. I surrender myself to you. And so that's a little bit of why uh, people raise their hands when we sing. And if you've never done that before, I remember the first time I did it, which seems like a strange thing to remember, but I was at a retreat and uh, a friend of mine that I thought was actually kind of cool, like started raising his hands. And I was like, well, I'd never really seen someone that I respect and thought was kind of cool raise their hands before. It's interesting how peer pressure kind of works that way. And then uh, the next time we were gathering around and singing with one another, I, I raised my hands and I still do it to this day. So thanks to that guy and to the Holy Spirit for encouraging me to do that. So if you've never done that before, it's oftentimes a very surrendering humbling experience because you're essentially saying, I don't care what people think around me or what my arms are doing. Sometimes they get a little tired, but you keep them up. You bring them down for a little rest, but it's an opportunity for you to say, God, I love you. I'm raising my hands to you. And this is the one that I worship. And this is the one that I serve. So that's what that, that is what that is all about. In case you were wondering, maybe some of you were like, I, won't, I'm, I don't even understand why we do that anyway. So maybe that was helpful too. <laughs> even raise your hands for years. Oh, that's why. Cool. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you a question as we start off today, as we kind of respond to what has been read. Uh, What do you stand for? Or maybe a a different question to phrase it that way. What would other people say that you stand for? Uh, What are the things in your life that you say, this matters to me? Uh, These are the people that I identify with. You know, a lot of uh, ways that people are sharing their opinion nowadays is is online. You, You know this, right? Sometimes you're going through your Facebook status feed and it's like, Whoo! You wonder, like, was that really, did they really think that was going to be helpful? Or are they just trying to say something? Like, what, what is going on there? And a lot of people do that. They just blast uh, the Facebook world and they think, oh, now I've really expressed my opinion about something. Uh, ways other people express their opinion are through signs on street corners. Maybe you've seen people on street corners uh, doing something along those lines. Ads on buses. Uh, in the States lately, we've seen petitions and protests, people standing up for what they believe in. Other people get in debates. Now, while you may not agree with all of these different things, you would say that these people in many ways though, are, are living by a certain set of convictions, right? You maybe heard the statement before, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, right? So these, these people are, are taking a stand. So the opposite, in many ways, is people will minimize their beliefs, Maybe you've done that before. You say, ah, that's not really that important. So I won't talk about it. I won't let people know. Uh, We've talked over the last number of weeks as we've been looking at the book of Esther of compromise. You actually compromise what you stand for. So you do fall for anything. And other people, they just don't do or say anything at all. Right? I'll just kind of sit on the sidelines, not worry. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Just kind of not, not do anything at all. If you're a skeptic, or maybe you're a person who lives in an atheistic perspective today, I want to ask you, what, what do you stand for? And what are the grounds by which you stand on things? If you don't believe in an absolute moral or an absolute truth, how far can you take what you stand for? Have you ever thought about that before? What is the foundation of the way that I think? You see, Christianity is interesting because Christianity transcends cultures and defines for us an absolute truth across many different cultures. And so for us, we can stand on the same truth that they were standing for 2,000 years ago and years before that. It's an interesting thing about the Christian perspective. So what do you stand for? 
What would prevent you from standing for something? What is a level of persecution that you would say, I don't want to ruffle that much feathers, or that could maybe make me be marginalized amongst this larger group of people, so I'm not going to do it. What would that be? What would you be unwilling to face for your faith, for your worldview, what you stand up for? Enter Esther. Now, up until this point, the, the book of Esther is fascinating. And maybe, you, maybe you've understood this so far. If you're just coming in with us for the very first time. In the first chapter, we are introduced to a king named Xerxes the Great. Or in the text, he's read as Ahasuerus. But if we study history, we know him as Xerxes the Great. An incredibly powerful man. The most powerful man to live at this time. And in the first chapter of Esther, we read that he actually throws this enormous party for all of his officials in his provinces, and he calls everybody in. It's months and months long, this party. Imagine that. So there's this first party where he's trying to woo everybody and say, look how powerful I am. And then as soon as this, this party is over, six-month party, he has another week-long party just for his officials in the Susa, the capital. And they're partying, and they're, they're getting wasted. And at some point in the week, King Xerxes says, I want to show off my wife, Queen Vashti, to everybody. And so he calls his queen, and he says, Come on, sweetie, come and show yourself so I can show you off to everyone. And Vashti has the audacity to say, I'm not coming. And Xerxes could have solved the issue with simply going and having a chat with Vashti. But instead, he asks his officials, what should we do? And they're like, well, if we do not show them how powerful you are, all the men in the country are going to lose control of their households. So I say you banish Vashti from ever coming to see you again. And also what you should do is you should say that men can be as powerful as they want in their households throughout the country. And King Xerxes in his drunken stupor is like, great idea! fantastic. So what was interesting is Vashti from the very beginning doesn't want to actually come to King Xerxes and he actually in the same way grants her request by saying you can't come before me anymore. She's like oh phew. Enter chapter 2 and we read that uh, the king starts to get a little bit sad. Uh, We read that a couple of years have passed. He's lost some battles and he's feeling a bit remorseful about what he's done to Vashti but can't reverse that decision. And so what he does to his, says to his officials, what am I going to do? And they're like, hey, we got this great idea. Get all of the, the good-looking virgins and all the virgins throughout the country to come. You sleep with as many of them as you want and then you choose the one that you like the most. And Xerxes, being the narcissistic power man that he is, is what do you think he says? Terrible idea. No, he's like, yeah, sounds great. Enter, who we read about, is a a girl named Esther. And Esther is a Jew. And the Jews, uh, some of them are living in the province of Persia. They're living under foreign rule, foreign reign. And we read about a girl named Esther and her uncle Mordecai. And Mordecai says to Esther, he says, I don't want you to tell anybody uh, that you're a Jew. Which is more than just compromising. It's actually not eating the food that they were restricted to eat. It is living and abiding by laws that they were told not to live by. But she keeps in complete secrecy. And once you know it, Esther is the one that pleases the king the most. So then we read the story goes. She's now the queen. And then we get introduced to a man named Haman the Agagite. Our villain. And Haman the Agagite decides that he wants to be powerful as well. And the king actually 
gives him a couple of raises and he gets a little bit more powerful. And then to demonstrate his power, he goes into the king's gate where it just so happens Mordecai, Esther's uncle, works and says, I want everybody to bow to me. And uh, Mordecai says, I'm sorry, I'm not bowing to you. And Haman gets upset about it. How dare one man do this? And, and last week we learned that he goes to the king and says, there's a group of people, not just this one guy, who don't live by the rules of the Persian Empire. And so you know what I think we should do? I think we should murder them all. I think we should annihilate an entire race of people. King, let's commit genocide. The king's like, huh, well, I want to be the most powerful. And Haman, your idea seems pretty good. So let's do it. Enter chapter 4. And so in chapter 4, in the very beginning verses of chapter 4, we see Mordecai's response. Mordecai is distraught. He's throwing a fit. We read that he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, you actually read that this is quite a ceremony of people that are feeling distraught. It's actually to, to represent and to signify he feels like death has happened. And he's actually making a scene in front of the king's gate. You see, as he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, he can't go into the king's gate, but he can certainly stand on the outside and make a scene. And we read in verse 3, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it's not just Mordecai that's standing here mourning and making a scene. It's Jews throughout all of the provinces that are going, we're going to be killed. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be wiped out. This is a big deal. This is a situation. Imagine if suddenly uh, our, our government said, we're going to wipe out all the Christians. We'd be doing something too. And so here they are realizing what has come, what has happened and now this country that they're living in and the reality of what could potentially be their future. And so Mordecai is not just comfortable now just to, just to sit Something needs to happen. And so the second part is Mordecai makes an appeal to Esther. So what happens is Esther finds out that Mordecai is making a scene. And so she is unable to actually go to him. Like it, uh, according to rules, she can't go to him outside the king's gate. And so she sends a trusted eunuch, Hathach. And she sends him clothes and says, Mordecai, put some clothes on, man. Like take off the sackcloth. Like put something on decent. And Mordecai responds and essentially fills her in on everything that has happened. It's like, Esther, you maybe are, are living there and you're in the harem, but this is what's happened. We're going to be destroyed. I can't wear nice clothes right now. I can't do anything right now. And he fills Esther in. And what he says to her is he says, you, you can't stand by either. You can't just sit back and watch this whole thing unfold. And he actually says, you need to go to the king. Now, this is a complete change of heart from Mordecai. If we go back to Esther 2 verse 20, it says this. It says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So notice the change of heart in Mordecai. At one minute, he's like, Esther, let's just keep our whole identity a complete secret. Let's compromise in every which way our beliefs. Now he's saying, no. No, Esther, we cannot 
compromise our beliefs anymore. We have to stand up for who we are. And you have to go to the king. In many ways, what Mordecai is doing here, if we're to apply it, is really the action of repentance. Now, many people understand repentance. You need to repent. And in many ways, they're like, "You, you need to change your action. You need to stop doing that. But the Greek word for repentance in the original language it was written is the Greek word metanoia. Can everyone say metanoia? And what metanoia means is to change your mind. It's to change your thinking. It's to change the way that you view and see the world. So what has happened in Mordecai is he's literally now changed the way that he's thinking. It's no longer just, okay, we'll compromise interaction. It's like, no, this has gone to the core of who I am, into what I believe about the world that I live in, and I need to now live differently out of that. This is exactly what Jesus wants to do to you and to me. He wants to change the way you think, because if he just changes your actions, he's not going to change the way that you think. But if he changes the way you think, it'll change the way that you act and live. It's incredible. So in verses 9 to 17, we then have kind of Esther's response to this. And so Esther must step up. Now, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, there's only seven trusted individuals are allowed to go and hang out with the king without them being called in. So only seven. Esther is not one of those seven. We read in the text that Esther has not been called in for 30 days. Now, as we learned a few chapters ago in verses, chapter 2, verse 19, we're told that Xerxes has a second gathering of virgins. And what we discovered there is likely he's chosen Esther as his queen, but he wants to continue sleeping with all, all the other virgins. So do you think the king has been sleeping alone for the last 30 days? No. This is us being introduced to how powerful of a man he is. How narcissistic he is. At any whim, he can do whatever he wants. So when Esther says, I haven't been called in for 30 days, what she's essentially saying is, he doesn't care about me. And if I go and I just dismiss his decree that only seven are allowed in, he could kill me on the spot. And and I don't know if I'm willing to do that. You see, if she stays silent, her people will be ruthlessly slaughtered. If she speaks up, it may mean her own death. Now, to apply this, as Christians, sometimes we find ourselves in these sorts of situations. Not maybe to the necessity of death. I mean, we have brothers and sisters all across the world that if they stand up for their faith in Jesus, they are slaughtered. 7,000 Christians last year were killed because of their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. 7,000. You don't hear about that on the news. 7,000. And here we live in this country where we do have our freedom of religion. And while Christianity is being increasingly marginalized, we're embarrassed to say on our Facebook pages, was at Church of the City this morning. It was amazing. I'm just so thankful for Jesus and what he's doing in my life. Hope I better not offend anybody. Or maybe it's your work situation and you've made some decisions at work that you're like, well, I'm, I'm gonna, rather than putting myself on the line of potentially losing my job, I'm just going to go along with what everyone else is doing around here. Just remain silent about it, things. In, a, in an age where many of us are recognizing the reality that uh, babies in the womb 
are being killed every single day. And we don't oftentimes take stands for that. Could be defending the voiceless and the marginalized in our communities and in our cities and in the world. Simply standing up for your faith in Jesus or how about even the audacity to share your faith with somebody else? See, this is, this, is, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. What would it take for you to actually take it seriously to share the good news of Jesus with somebody? Would it take them getting cancer for you to go, well, they're going to die, so I better tell them about Jesus? I have a friend and he told me, he shared the gospel at one point with a friend and uh, he had to apologize to him because they'd had been a friend, had a friendship for about a couple of years. And he said to me, you know, I, want, I need to apologize to you because his marriage was in trouble and he was about to get divorced. And he finally shared the gospel with him. And uh, he said, you know what, I haven't been a good friend because good friends don't withhold good news. And this guy then came to Christ. His marriage was restored. They had a child. Because his life was radically changed by the good news of Jesus. Or how about the simple reality of allowing your faith or your worldview to shape the things that we listen to, to shape the things that we watch, to shape the sort of conversations we engage in? See, because a lot of it, we're just like, I don't, I don't want to be like negatively affected. I don't think it should be, it should hurt to be a Christian. I think I can just live as everyone else lives, kind of do the thing. It's not going to be a very big deal. If we look at the good news of the gospel and we look at the examples of Christians throughout the ages, they died to self. They defended the voiceless and the marginalized. There's actually a story in the early centuries of a group of Christians that there was like a breakout of something like Ebola and all the people in the city were fleeing. And the Christians were the ones that said, no, we can't flee. These people need cared for. We've got to stick around. And many of them died for doing that. But it was also what they did that led to people being restored. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in the following verses, Mordecai, he now needs to go on the... He's like, I can't just let Esther say, no, it might be a little bit of a worry before the king. Now he goes on like, no, I need to give you the reasons why you cannot remain silent. That you have to step up. And so reason number one is found in verse 13. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. This first one's a little bit heavy. And he's essentially giving her a warning and a threat. He's saying, if you keep silent, it will not benefit you in the end because you will die as a Jew as well. He's saying, Esther, don't deceive yourself. If all the Jews are going to be slaughtered, you're a Jew, you will be slaughtered too. So maybe in the meantime you won't be killed, but long term you're going to die. Now to apply this to our situation, there is an imminent judgment eventually coming. And this is where everyone gets a little bit uncomfortable. What do you mean judgment? What do you mean justice? What do you mean punishment? Well, Christianity tells us that, that one day we serve a just God. And I'll tell you why serving a just God is good. Because what do you do with people like Hitler and Stalin and rapists and murderers? Because if you serve a God, well, they'll just, you know, we'll let everybody in. You don't serve a just God. But we serve a just God who tells us that each and every single one of us are broken. And we're fallen. 
And we choose and make decisions that are insanely selfish. And one of the greatest ways that we can deceive ourselves is believing that we're better than we actually are. And to prove this to us, how many of you have ever done something that you wish you had never done? Put them up. And you thought, I'm better than that. But then something happened. You started making choices. You're like, wow, what have I done? Paul says, the things that I want to do, I I can't do. And what he's telling us is that there's something insanely selfish at the core of who we are. And that insane selfishness actually puts us at odds with the maker and the maker of the universe who's perfect and holy. And what this God could have done is just said, well, you're gross, you're disgusting, you're like filthy rags as the scriptures talk about. But instead he says, no. I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to provide you a way out of your insane selfishness. I'm going to provide a way of this distance that you're at odds with me, and I'm going to send my perfect son to the earth to die on the cross for you, then come back to life, take your place, and then you can spend eternity with me. You see, Christianity is really, really interesting because it's enormously pessimistic. Because it says all of us are really, really bad. But it's enormously optimistic at the very same time. This is something that Keller says because the reality of that it's being optimistic is that we can all come before God and receive forgiveness for all of the stuff we wish we hadn't done. It then tells us that God just didn't figure that stuff out as we committed it, but that he actually knew about it before we did it. I imagine some marriages would change if you were able to look ahead and see all of the ways that your spouse would hurt you in the future. Now imagine God seeing all of the things that you've done that you're not proud of. And I'm just not talking about the things that like, you know, that are obvious. Like when Jesus talks about our actions and our thinking and our minds, he talks about when it comes to adultery, he says, you know, you think that just, you know, having sex with somebody else is, is bad. It says, you looking at somebody else with lustful intent is adultery. You've committed that in your heart. So he wants to change your thinking so that then in your actions, you'll live treating everybody the same. You won't idolize women and their bodies and use them and marginalize them. So this is Jesus. This is what he cares about. He says, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you for what you've done. So he's just. And so maybe there's a judgment on this side of heaven, but the other reality is that maybe it won't come for you on this side, but it will come on the the next side of your life. When a good, perfect, just, and holy God will come. Reason number two for Mordecai, he gives, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. What Mordecai is saying is, listen, God's going to get it done with or without you. You might perish first, though. So what's he saying? Doing the wrong thing is no safer than doing the right thing. And he has the faith that relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. And he's asking her the question, do you want to be a part of it, though? You see, this isn't a threat. This is more saying, you have gets this invitation to be part of the deliverance of the Jewish people. Do you want to be part of that? Application. Do you want to be part of the good news of Jesus, the greatest kingdom that this world has ever seen? Do you want to be part of it? Because God's going to get it done. 
Jesus says, he says, you know what? He says, uh, listen, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And we're all worried. Like, oh my goodness, like we're so marginalized here in our country. We're not getting slaughtered. And if there are Christians being slaughtered, some of them are being slaughtered in the countries where Christianity is exploding. And you know why? Because believers are starting to go, I've got to stand up for what I believe in. Because my brothers and sisters are dying. I can't compromise anymore. And sometimes I wonder what a little bit of marginalization, what a little bit of persecution might do to us. I think it might weed some of us out, if I'm honest. Because a few of us will go, wow, I didn't realize following Jesus was that difficult. It's hard. I remember I, the very first time, this is kind of a neat experience for me, I was at my high school and I was asked to share my testimony. It's really the first time I ever presented in front of people. And when I finished, I was like, I think I could keep doing that in my life. Um, and I remember I shared about following Jesus as a high school student. And I made it like, sound really terrible, if I'm honest. Like, it's hard to follow Jesus as a high school student. If you're a high school student today, I just want to identify with you and say, it's hard to follow Jesus in high school. And I had this guy come up to me afterwards and he's like, I can't believe you did that. This is an adult. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you made following Jesus sound really, really hard. I was like, huh? Isn't it not? Have you seen the culture and the world that we live in? Following Jesus is is extremely difficult. So the question then for us is, who are you identifying with? If it's not Jesus, who are you identifying with? What is your worldview? What is your good news story? Or what are the idols in your life holding you back? Is, the, uh, is it the approval? Like maybe you live in this religiosity where you're living in your mindset like a Pharisee of, I need the approval of God, so if I do enough of good things, then God will love me more. And God has proven his love for you in the cross and says, I love you. Maybe it's approval of yourself. You don't like yourself, and so you get into this act of doing all of these good things in order so you can feel better about yourself. And God says, you don't fool me. You're like a piece of glass before my eyes. Maybe it's the approval of other people. You're just like, I need everybody to think I'm like the best. And you don't think I'm the best. Well, then that's not very nice. Or maybe it's control. Maybe you're trying to hold on to control in your life, and what you realize is that the control that we think we have is actually not control at all. Or maybe it's comfort. You like, you like living comfortably. We all like living comfortably, but how far is that comfort taking you? And then lastly, maybe it's power. What sort of power or status do you feel like you have? If I were to stand up for my faith, I might lose that power and lose that status. Crazy. And then reason number three, Mordecai says, this is beautiful. He says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, Esther, there's a greater purpose here. And you could be part of that purpose. Step up. God could have brought you into the position that he's placed you as the queen, the one that the king liked the most of all of the virgins, and he could have you where he has you for a reason. So here's the question. Where does God have you right now? And maybe you are there for a certain reason and a particular purpose. So let's get out of the story for a second. Just say, where are you right now in your life? Who are the people that work beside you? Who are the people that you communicate with on a regular basis? Who are the neighbors that live beside you? Who are the people that you have influence with? And what God is asking us is say, I've got you there for a particular reason and purpose. 
A life-transforming moment for me in my journey with Jesus was when I realized that God had called me and he'd actually sent me on mission. And a mission is a special assignment. That's amazing. We're like go-go gadgets where it's like, be careful, this message will self-destruct. Boom, shoo, we got to go in. I used, the go, I used the, that guy's, what did I say last week? It was like, oh, when we're praying for Lauren, I said, if you've got go-go gadget, that was weird. But sorry, a little bit of a tangent here. The point being, we have a special assignment and a calling that we've been sent on. We're not just to like sit around, do life, just like everyone else is. No, it's like, look around you. Open your eyes. I think it would do Christians a lot of good to open their eyes and listen to people for once. Imagine if we listen to people. They actually teach you, when, if you've ever heard of the Alpha Course, they actually teach you in the Alpha Course, if you're a leader at a table, to just like take it. Like, let people vent at you about their, their hate for God. Let people vent at you about their disregard for Christianity. Because in hearing that, you hear where they place their good news stories of what they believe in. And then you get to share with them how that's never going to fulfill you. That thing is never going to be the answer. Only Jesus can fulfill that part of you. So after these three reasons, what happens with Esther? Here she stands up. Verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See what she's done? Her thinking has been changed. She says, I need to step up. You know one of the greatest things about Christianity too? Is that it's not just all emotionalism. Is that you can actually think about Christianity thoughtfully. And Christianity actually welcomes thoughts. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses are told that they actually can't go and research reasons why people disagree with being a Jehovah's Witness. Christianity says, go to town. Research all the reasons you you don't need to be a follower of Jesus or you shouldn't believe in God. Our our God's big enough. Our God's strong enough. Jesus is powerful enough. He'll woo you. Isn't that amazing? It's good news. And so here is Esther saying, I might die. I might die for being a Jew. I might die. Well, believe it or not, and this is where we'll begin to wrap up. There's a fantastic story, and this is how this story points to another even greater story. And this story can be found in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. This is a story about Jesus, in which Jesus was put in a defining moment where he was going to decide if I perish, I perish. So then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again three times. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So what is Jesus saying? If I perish, I perish. This is from Brian Gregory. Esther became troubled. Jesus became sorrowful to the point of death. Esther called out to her people for a fast. Jesus called out to his father. Esther asked her people to join her day and night. Jesus asked the disciples to join him for one hour, and they fell asleep. Esther took up sackcloth and ashes, entering death symbolically, but Jesus took up the beams and the nails, entering to death literally. Esther responded to her defining moment, knowing she might perish. Jesus entered into his defining moment, knowing that he would perish. Esther responds with, if I die, I die. Jesus responds with, into your hands, I commit my spirit and dies. See, what Esther does is Esther points us to Jesus and the defining reality of the good news of the gospel. You might be saying, well, what's the gospel? This is the gospel. That God himself has come to rescue and renew creation through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That there is an issue in this world. And we see it. Do we not see it as we look around and see the insane selfishness and brokenness of humanity? Do you not look around and go, wow, this world needs some good news. This is the good news. That God has not given up on the world. That God has pursued us and he's actually shown us how he's pursued us. And Jesus welcomes us into his family and says, I love you. I have not forsaken you. I have not given up on you. Now let's go and let's love everybody as much as I have loved you. And why? Grace. We read that Jesus came in both truth and grace. And a lot of people, what they like to do is they say, wow, you're a really truth-filled person. You're a really grace-filled person. Jesus didn't do it that way. It wasn't like, oh, today I feel like being truthful. Oh, today I'm going to be gracious. Because if you're gracious without identifying what is truthful, you're not actually being gracious. If you say that I'm really gracious and forgiving without actually recognizing the offense, you're not actually being gracious. Does that make sense? On the other side, if you're being truthful without being gracious, you're not being like Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He saw our sin. He saw the reality of our situation. And what did he do? He came and died on the cross. So this is what Matthew 16 verses 24 to 28 calls us to do. And I'm sorry, we're skipping a few slides. We'll go back to this one. This is what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What he's saying is you can be the wealthiest individual on the entire planet and you've forfeited your soul potentially. You can be the wealthiest human being on the planet and you can be a Christian, but if your money is your idol and your God, you forfeited your soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's heavy. And then he says, but you can see life eternally if you recognize what I've done for you and if you place your faith in that. And so what he invites us to do is, number one, how do we respond to this is we repent. And again, that's not solely behavior modification. That is mind-bending transformation. A change of mind. The gospel gives us a new worldview and perspective. You see, I can't stand religious piety and hypocrisy over somebody else because I've been saved by the same grace that they've been saved by. You see that? Like the gospel levels us and says we've all fallen short. So you can't say, well, I've fallen a little bit less short than them. No, you've all fallen short. See, the only ability that you have to stand is on Jesus Christ. So don't break away his legs too. And what it says to us is believe. How do we believe? We just trust the news of Jesus and have faith believing it is the best news the world could ever and has ever heard. You see, a lot of people, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, they want to hear that prayer, and then it's like, okay, that signifies that they're in. Let's wake up. If you believe something, it'll automatically affect the way that you live. If it doesn't, you haven't believed it. If I believe in Birkenstocks, which I do, I will buy Birkenstocks. If I say I believe in Birkenstocks, but I don't have the money to buy Birkenstocks, then something is getting in the way. Christ has said, I have given everything that you'd ever need to be saved. So quit living in shame. Because when you live in shame, you're saying that what you did on the cross, Jesus, wasn't enough for me. If you're living in a religiosity, I've got to do more. Then what Jesus has done for you isn't enough for you because you've got to win your way to heaven. And Jesus has said, it is finished. And that wasn't just his life physically on the earth because he did come back. But that's it is finished. Everything that you have ever done that offends God. And he is perfect and holy. And he says, welcome to the family. So when you place your faith in Jesus, when you believe the good news of the gospel, that God has come and he's rescued and restored us, that affects the way that you live. So it's not about our works. It's that the object that we place our faith in automatically affects our works. So if you've been told before that it's your works that save you, throw that way of thinking out the window. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that save you. And if that is a truly held position of faith and belief, it will change the way that you live. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that none of us can stand up and say we're better than the rest. But I thank you, God, that you have placed us all on the same footing. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room today that has never put their faith and their belief in you as the only hope for humanity, I pray that they would do so. May this be a defining moment, like the defining moment for Esther. God, we've reached defining moments many ways in many ways in our life. God, whether it be with coworkers online, whether it be with friendships, I pray that we would stand up. And God, we would do it in the way that you did it, Jesus, with both, laced with both truth and grace. May we not separate those things and diminish what you have done for us. And I thank you for coming in both truth and grace. And I pray, God, that we would represent that well. I pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would fall now as he is here, but that you would touch individual hearts and that they would respond to you, Jesus. And I pray that we would enter into a place of repentance, a changing of mind. And may we learn, oh, understand that discipleship is just taking one step more towards you, Jesus, every single day, moving from unbelief to belief in every single area of our lives. I thank you, God, that you walk with us even in our childhood faith. God, I'm excited for this morning. We got baptisms coming. And these are people that have said, this is my defining moment. I follow Jesus. I identify with what he has done. I pray there'd be more of us in the future that would be taking that step as well. We love you. All God's people said, amen. Amen.